Genre. And welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Benjamin J. Grimm from The Thing, the next big thing comic book miniseries. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest Anna Papard. Welcome back, Anna. Thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to talking about our ever-loving blue-eyed <laughs> friend in this podcast. This is one of those characters that I have had like since day one, like, oh, we need to do a podcast specifically talking about the thing. We actually very recently talked about the Fantastic Four and and Galactus. We did the Galactus trilogy and we just kind of talked about the group uh, as a whole. But the thing is one of my very favorite comic book characters, one of my favorite characters, period. Uh, and so I'm glad we get to uh, do this. And for this discussion, we're going to be talking about a miniseries that was called The Thing. The next big thing. And this was a six issue miniseries written by Walter Mosley with art by Tom Riley and colors by Jordi Belair. And it tells the story of the thing on a cosmic slash mythic slash hard boiled noir mystery adventure with lots of fighting. Um, <laughs> the tone lots. is kind of hard to pin down. Like as I was thinking about it, I'm like, well, how would mm -hmm. I actually describe this? Uh, it's got a little bit of everything in a way that I think the balance would be incredibly easy to mess up and make the audience feel like they're not getting a handle on what it is. And even when I was writing the summary, I'm like, I completely forgot that this whole issue is just this one fight. <laughs> this cosmic being yeah. that actually doesn't really matter that much. Uh, and, and we'll circle back to like when I first read it, because when you first read it, you're kind of like propulsively moving from issue to issue to issue. And then when I'm writing the summary, I'm like, how, what is this thing? <laughs> this is so bizarre, but so delightful to read. Yeah, as I was reading your summary in our notes, I was sort of like, oh, is that what happened? <laughs> I did go back and reread it. I've read it a couple of times already, but I feel like the visuals and the mythic quality of it st stuck with me more than the actual plot. But I have refreshed on it now, so I'm ready. Oh, the visuals are so amazing. And I want to give full acknowledgement to Jordi Belair. I think when we talk about mm -hmm. uh, comic books on this podcast, sometimes we don't talk about the colors at all her coloring is perfection uh in mm -hmm. this she is one of the best colors working in comic books today i think that's just kind of accepted for anyone who reads comic books in general like you see jordy blair's name you're like okay this one's gonna look good but yep. in particular the way they did some of the monochromatic panels and scenes uh and the the fight sequences um like the art you, you can see like the bones of the art, but just her, her colors just made it pop and sing so, so much. I loved the coloring on this. Yeah, I want to get into that a little bit more. I have thoughts about those uh, duo, oh. those monochromatic fight scenes, the orange on orange. I've got thoughts. We'll get back to it. <laughs> okay, so some trivia before we talk about the miniseries itself. The Thing is a member of the Fantastic Four, the comic book heroes created by Jack Kirby and Stanley at the beginning of the Marvel comic book universe. He is Ben Grimm, a pilot who gets orange, rocky skin and super strength after he's exposed to cosmic rays. And um, it, I, I think it's generally accepted that this is one of the characters that Jack Kirby felt the strongest like personal connection to. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And... Uh, we, I, I know, uh, like there exists online, you can find like Hanukkah cards that he set out where he sketched the thing for, for personal friends, um, when he, when he was sending holiday messages. Um, and, uh, the thing is now I, it wasn't 
while he was working on the thing, though, I think implicitly it was. So he is now like canonically a Jewish superhero uh, within the Marvel universe. And while the thing has been a core member of the Fantastic Four, he has been on other superhero teams and there have been several series with the thing as the protagonist. So from 1974 to 1983, the thing teamed up with uh, other Marvel superheroes in Marvel two and one from 1983 to 86. There was a solo series called the thing there were many series about the thing in 2002 and 2003 an ongoing series was announced in 2005 but it only ran for eight issues before it was canceled if that if dan slot was writing that today there's no way that only goes for eight issues just <laughs> dan slot didn't have the marvel cachet he has now when he was doing that one uh the the series we're talking about today came out in 2021 but there's also a new mini series called clobbering time that is being released right now i think the thing is one of those characters that a lot of creators like feel like they have a good story uh, to tell well yeah i mean i think there's a reason why you know his most prolonged quote-unquote solo series is marvel two and one he's a character that goes well with other characters he's a character mm -hmm. that's a ton of fun to write you're always happy when he shows up i think lots of people like to like to take their hand at the thing and he's also a fantastic visual for artists mm -hmm. uh the orange rocky skin with that big brow uh but then you know the, the task of making that character um who's you know outwardly monstrous but also like pitiable and uh but cheerful <laughs> at least the facade of cheer but also trying to like draw the angst that's underneath all that it seems like artists also really delve into drawing this character well he's just so emblematic of the power of cartooning right i mean he is mm -hmm. this fantastical character who is so, so identifiable within and despite and because of his monstrousness like all of those things at the same time i mean a character that can kind of only exist in this space and i think when i think about the live action portrayals of the thing that really comes across to me he's just such a comic book character i think it's hard to do a character like that in live action he's just meant for this medium even the animated versions, I agree with you. Uh, there's something mm -hmm. moving the character into motion and having to try and do the expressiveness of the face in a way that isn't just like capturing a moment of the eyes and the brow furrowed and things like that, where you're like, you actually have to see the brow moving. Oh, it's not as good. <laughs> as, there's something about as, the majesty the of him and the stillness of comics that I think just works so perfectly. I think there's a reason why he's like, arguably the most iconic Jack Kirby design. Mm -hmm. right, I think you're right. Um, and this series was written by Mo uh, Walter Mosley, and I just want to acknowledge that he has a long career as a novelist, including a successful hard-boiled detective series featuring Easy Rollins. His first novel was Devil in a Blue Dress, which was adapted into a Denzel Washington film. And he received the National Book Foundation's Medal for Distinguished Contributions to American Letters in 2020. Um, he has a, like, a pretty prolific novel writing career, but also he's written plays and a couple graphic novels um, with, with this series. I remember uh, when this series that. got announced with like Mosley's name attached and <laughs> yeah, the group of folks that I talk about comics with were just blown away that he would be attached to a series like this. I mean, he's done some other comics work as well, but yeah, just a huge get for Marvel to have him mm -hmm. writing a series like this. Yeah. And um, a lot of times when novelists come to comics and they haven't done it a lot, there's like way too many words on the page. I think it's, it's the consistent complaint about novels. I did not feel that at all uh, with his prose uh, and the dialogue that he wrote uh, for this. Um, it, it was just just the right amount uh, you know, of words in the word balloon. Um, so he transitioned. For someone who hasn't done very, men, very much work, uh, he transitioned seamlessly, it felt like, as I was reading this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the most 
fascinating and impressive things about it. This is not an overwritten series. I mean, it relies on the visuals to tell its story a ton. And I mean, I'll have a ton of nice things to say about Riley's art in the series, which I adore. But yeah, he's he's not overwriting it. There's a lot that's told here visually and is really working in concert with his with his artist. Um, I guess we always have the question, like, how did you come to it? Uh, I'd ask that both for this miniseries and for the thing. Do you remember, uh, like when you came upon either the series or the character of the thing for the first time? Gosh, I have no idea when I would have became aware of the character, the thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, this was probably how I became aware of him, though. I don't think it made a big impression on me on me at the time. It's only funny in retrospect, as I became a Marvel fan, but you remember the Simpsons episode that has Stan Lee in it. (laughs) And I remember there's a little joke in there where like (laughs) the kid wants a Batman figure. And then Stan's like, wouldn't you rather have a figure of the thing? And he's like, well, only Batman fits in my Batmobile and Stan's like, the thing can fit. Look, he's fitting right now. And he's like trying to jam this giant thing character into the... anyway. That probably is the first time I became aware of the thing. Like seeing that, I was like, what, like a young teenager, probably. Mm-hmm. But uh yeah, I didn't really come to Marvel Comics until kind of my early 20s. When I was a teenager, I read some DC comics. And then for my dissertation, I read a lot of Fantastic Four. My first dissertation chapter was all about Fantastic Four. And um, I later turned that into a book chapter in a book called Superheroes in Excess, in which I talk a lot about the thing and the different kind of metaphors and allegories of otherness and difference that that character can embody. I mean, he's a really... We think about Spider-Man as being kind of the Marvel character, but I really Mm -hmm. think there's a strong argument to make that character is in fact the thing in terms of him being this character who is self-reflexive in terms of him being this character who has real strong mixed feelings doesn't quite cover it about being a superhero i mean he doesn't want to be the thing and yet he's forced into this role and just the way that that character is depicted in early fantastic four comics is shocking for the time, Mm -hmm. like for 1961, 1962, this is a character that within the first few issues of that series is actually suicidal. Like there's no (laughs) bones about it. This is a depressed, like self-destructive character to the point where the other members of the fantastic four are like, we're going to have to do something about him. And by do something about him, they mean like, get rid of this person (laughs) and it's shocking and horrible and dark and like they would kind of go back on that a little bit you know when the fantastic four get their bright costumes and it becomes a little bit more of a conventional superhero comic but still like that inner darkness of the thing remains and he's one of the earliest characters in all of superhero comics that you see you know questioning the cost of being a superhero and i think the influence of that character is actually underappreciated despite how much we we all kind of love this character. I mean, we think about the deconstructions of the 1980s as being this like self-conscious turning point in the superhero genre. And yet the thing is there like in 1961 being, this is the cost of being a superhero. I don't want and, it. And I it's want literally to the birth of Marvel superheroes. Uh, the, mm-hmm, you know, the Fantastic mm-hmm. Four is considered the start, even though obviously Captain America goes back to the Golden Age and they bring him back. And you know, there's an Ant-Man horror story that they make into Ant-Man's origin. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was in a Tales of Suspense <laughs> or something before, before this. But this is considered like the entry of Marvel Comics uh, and superheroes. And it's there, like you said, from, from the very first page. Um, it's, it's like you say, Spider-Man and like that 
angstiness with Spider-Man, it's all in that John Romita cover with Spider-Man No More and the spider suit mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in the trash can. And that's like one of the most famous moments for Spider-Man. That is the thing's life. <laughs> you know, that, that know. singular moment <laughs> for, for Spider-Man where he's like questioning if he should be a superhero anymore. Uh, that is, uh, you know, from Fantastic Four number one to this miniseries. That is part of who the thing is as a character. So, yeah, anyway, I mean, my journey with the thing was deep diving on Lee Kirby Fantastic Four for for dissertation work and, of course, falling in love with it as a fan as well. I've read his adventures more sporadically over the years. Just nothing has been able to sort of recapture that run for me other than the occasional miniseries like this, which taps Mm -hmm. into a lot of the classic elements of the character and sort of picking up things from different eras and having a real interesting nostalgic feel that's partly rooted in references and partly just rooted in a general emotional memory of comics from the 60s and 70s that's something i definitely want to talk about with this series or the nature of nostalgia in this series yeah they label the the first page doesn't say like a, a store or a classic from another time or something mm-hmm. Is that, oh, i gotta look up and like many say. years ago <laughs> yeah they, they they don't do the thing that sometimes big superhero companies do where they're like okay this storyline is taking place in between these panels of this specific issue we're letting this creator go back and tell the story of what happened here very specifically and we're going to give you editor's boxes uh explaining it all they don't do that this is not current continuity thing this is just a story from the past and and they go with it and it works and i think marvel should do that more often I absolutely uh, of, think they should do that more often. Just kind of do a timeless story of the X-Men or a timeless story of Spider-Man or the thing uh, and not worry about where it fits in continuity. And the real hardcore readers can do the work if they want to of trying to figure out exactly where this could fit. But also it doesn't matter if it doesn't fit perfectly anywhere because it's just a good story. Um, my memory of the thing is, so my first comic book was reading an issue of the X-Men. Then pretty soon after, I think it was at a Scholastic Book Fair, I bought a little like guide to marvel superheroes because i'd read x-men and i liked that uh and then i I do remember uh reading about the fantastic four in there and thinking like mr fantastic isn't a great name (laughs) i remember that reaction (laughs) even as a child (laughs) for this founder but the thing i'm like there's something kind of cool about the thing and this rocky skin uh and and um and then you know just through the years like my dissertation research was mostly about um the, you know the x-men uh but i've you know you can't be working on on comics and not come across the fantastic four regularly yeah as either a fan or a scholar you know however you're approaching it uh and there's something that's just so resonant about the thing he's such a great character and great creation by jack kirby and stanley and there's i, I think it's unfortunate that you know their careers ended in a rift that um and that rift is now extended to fandom where like when you talk about them as creators, <laughs> it becomes like, well, yeah. you know, you, you got to give more credit to this one. I, I, for me, like both of their best work was when they were collaborating together. <laughs> Just, I, th- I think that's uh, like, there's some wild, crazy ideas that Jack Kirby does when he goes over to DC after his time at Marvel. But I think his best stuff is like this early Fantastic Four stuff uh, with, with Stanley uh, putting the words into the characters' uh, mouths. And we know a lot of those are Jack Kirby's ideas and not Stanley like giving him the story. But there is something that works so well about their combination, uh, particularly in those early Fantastic Four. Uh, oh, sorry. Did you have a thought on that? Oh, no. Yeah, I was just I, I mostly agree. But I mean, as you said, I'm always nervous about weighing into those complex debates I about Stanley. <laughs> I just like I don't it's complicated and I it love <laughs> Jack Kirby's fourth world stuff so much. I wrote about Mr. Miracle this year and how wonderful mm-hmm. it is. But at the same time, 
yeah, probably. It can be a little impenetrable that... at times too. Yeah, <laughs> Stanley made it they, more accessible. The thing that they, yeah, that they both did that is closest to my heart really is their run on Fantastic Four. I have to be honest about that. Which for a very long time had the record for longest collaboration by issue um, mm-hmm. of any any team. I think it was Brian Michael Bendis and uh, oh, who's the artist on Ultimate Spider? Mark Bagley, right? Mark Bagley. They broke that with Ultimate, uh, Ultimate Spider Man. That was decades later. Well, before we move on to the full summary of this miniseries, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode, and we especially want to thank any of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast, and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. All right, uh, this was six issues, so I'll just kind of go issue by issue. And... When I was writing the summary, <laughs> we kind of alluded to this already. This is one that the feeling of the book is way different than the actual plot of what happens. Yeah. And uh, just writing down the quick summary does not do justice to like the vibes of reading these pages, uh, both because I'm not capturing the art, but there's also something about this. this the storyline doesn't quite matter. It's kind of like a classic film noir, where when you step back and try and say what actually happened plot-wise, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it felt right when you were watching it all. Uh, I think that's the kind of feeling I have going from issue to issue this. So in issue number one, a Grim Reaper-type figure named Mott goes and visits a man and takes his heart, but leaves him with a weird glowing light. The thing gets back from a fishing trip and finds Alicia, his girlfriend, walking around with a, name, name, a man named Vasquez. When the thing asks who she's with, Alicia gets defensive, and the thing was a little bit uh, aggressive. <laughs> and Vasquez is going to use mace on the thing, and the thing's going to like rear back from the mace in his eyes. And in doing this, he throws a car in his panic. He gets arrested and put in a super prison with Hercules, but he gets bailed out by Mr. Pantera. Fantastic. Alicia tells Ben they need to take a break, and she leaves. As Ben is uh, sitting, depressed and alone, a magical fairy appears and says that this fairy represents the Elysium courtship dancers, and they've chosen Ben to receive a free trial of their dating service, where they will find him a perfect match. Ben has a dream where Mott takes his heart, uh, but when he wakes up, he agrees to let the fairy go find him a date. They pair Ben with a woman named Amaryllis de Jour. Great name. Love it. <laughs> no notes. Uh, he goes to meet Amaryllis and they're flirting. And then that man from the beginning of the issue who had his heart removed, he bursts through the wall and tells Ben to leave his woman alone. This uh, I, Then Ben and this guy are going to fight. This is issue number two. Uh, it turns out this guy's not going to be nearly as important as you think. <laughs> when you see the, the, like he's the cover image and stuff. And it's like, oh, wait, he's barely... Barely this, because they're going to fight, and the guy's going to knock Ben out and kidnap Amaryllis. Then Ben wakes up, and a kid who is one of those sort of like creepy, knows too much kind of kid named Bobby, he's going to guide Ben to an underground city where the man has taken Amaryllis. Uh, ben and this guy fight, and Amaryllis steals a vial of light from him, and then Ben wins, and the guy's blackened heart bursts out of his chest. It, this all sounds much more violent than it is when I say it like that. <laughs> this isn't even like Indiana Jones level stuff that they're doing with the heart. It's it's like a, a iconograph, you know, iconic representation of a heart come, is taken out in the first image. <laughs> it's not gory and violent. <laughs> uh, issue number uh, three. Uh, a fighter called the champion of the universe shows up and he and Ben have a massive fight. This is going to take up a lot of this issue. And this is fantastic superhero storytelling, the way that this fight is drawn. Uh, Amaryllis is um, going to hit the champion in the head with that vial of light that she took and he's going to fall unconscious. And the thing is going to take the champion back to the Baxter building where the fantastic four live and work and lock him up. 
but the champion, like they try and grill him, but he won't explain why he attacked the thing, only hinting that there's someone pulling strings. And he also implies that there's something odd about both Amaryllis and this kid named Bobby, which to which I say, duh. <laughs> it's like <laughs> there's been something very weird feeling about both of these characters uh, throughout the series. Issue number four, the Silver Surfer shows up. And this is another fantastic Jack Kirby creation. The Silver Surfer just in uh, another one, for whatever reason, Mr. Fantastic to me sounds like a dumb name. Silver Surfer does not. It works. It rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and I like I forget what it actually means. I think when I'm saying the name Silver Surfer, it just sounds right. He shows up to take the champion. Uh, ben keeps the champion's belt, which is going to transport him and Bobby and Amaryllis to the moon. Uh, ben is going to fight off some robots, and then some more cosmic beings are going to show up. And uh, we also cut back to Alicia, Ben's girlfriend. Her new boyfriend seems to be possessed, uh, and they fight, and Alicia is knocked unconscious. Issue number five. The Thing, Bobby, and Amaryllis are going to get separated as they fight these three cosmic beings that are there. Uh, the Thing is going to have like a big brawl. Uh, Bobby's going to try and hide. Uh, and then Amaryllis is going to be running and then stop and turn and face the man following her, who is Terax. Uh, and she says she would have let him live another millennia or so, but now she has to kill him. And she does. And this is ominous. If you, uh, you know, if, if and the way it's drawn is so cool. What she does, uh, she so like good. sticks him with a pin, and cracks start to uh, appear all across his, his skin. But it's drawn in this silhouette way that is just so striking and evocative. Uh, Bobby and the Thing are going to win their fights, and then uh, they reunite, and then Doctor Doom shows up. Ben and Doom fight, but Thing realizes Doom only wants to go to the afterlife to rescue his mother's soul, so he agrees that he's going to help Doom. Bobby is going to reveal his true cosmic form as Watcher Jr. He is a child of the of the Watcher race, which is a big cosmic race uh, in Marvel Comics. And he's going to warn Ben that if he helps Doom, it will harm his soul. Amaryllis is going to reveal that she was the fairy that got Ben onto the dating service. Also, she was Alicia's boyfriend who made Ben jealous. And she is Mott, the Grim Reaper figure who has been in Ben's dreams. All right, issue number six, the big finale. Mott has taken Alicia to her realm. Ben wants her freed. Mott says that if Ben gives himself to her willingly, she will free Alicia. Ben decides he's just going to go take Alicia. <laughs> and he goes <laughs> to rescue her. But Alicia uh, is actually uh, holding her own in the realm of death quite well. She's not a damsel in distress. Uh, Doom uh, is going to be down in the afterlife as well. And he and Ben are going to go try and free Doom's mom too. But Doom's mom is going to say, you can take Alicia because she's not actually dead, but I have died. This is where I, I must stay. Uh, but it gives, uh, she tells Doom that it gives her peace, that he is alive still. So uh, Ben and Alicia, so they all leave. Everyone that's alive leaves Death's Realm. And then Ben and Alicia go have a heart to heart where she says, May, uh, where Ben says, I think maybe you need a better boyfriend. And she asks if he'll be better for her. And he says, yes, the end. I, again, this is one that, like, the feeling as you read this, it's just all great vibes, and, like, it captures good old superhero uh, just feelings perfectly. Uh, and that summary that maybe doesn't feel that. If it might feel a little erratic, I will just say you don't care as you're reading. You're just enjoying it. You're swept along. Well, maybe we should start with, like, talking about that erraticness of it, because what really connects to me, I think, about the way this story is told is that... It's the feeling of flipping through a bunch of random comics, you know, from a broad period, like I'm thinking the 70s, but, you know, also obviously the classic 60s era is in there as well. It's that feeling of just flipping through a bunch of random comics that might not even be in continuity, but just 
fantastic thing is happening after fantastic thing, right? Which I mean, mm-hmm. that's a Fantastic Four thing as well. Like I always think about the magic of the Lee Kirby Fantastic Four as you're wandering around the Baxter building and every time you open a door, there might be another universe beyond that door. You know, it's just a yeah. space of wonder. And that's and they'll very just go much have it. Here. They'll go have an adventure in a different genre entirely. Like there'll be mm-hmm. a, a Ben pirate adventure. Why? Exactly. I don't know. Jack Kirby wanted to draw a pirate ship that day. <laughs> it's not, it's not quite clear why, uh, but, it, but it works. And that's sort of the old fashionedness of the storytelling in a way too, you know, because that's the magic of comics. Anything that can be drawn can be believed and you can <laughs> open doors onto another galaxy just from going from one panel to the next. That's what happens in the space of the gutter in a comic book, right? And this comic mm-hmm. makes the absolute best use of that. It doesn't make linear narrative sense the way a literary you know, not an avant-garde literary novel, but a traditional literary novel does. It makes sense the way a superhero comic makes sense. And mm-hmm. there's just something that speaks to me so powerfully about that, you know? You just wander into the sewer and suddenly there's a replica of Manhattan in the sewer and we're just going to spend 10 pages there and then we're going to leave. And I guess those people just stayed there after we left. And I don't have to question it. That's just superhero comics. It's just pure yeah. superhero comics. I, I mean, this was one question i i wanted to bring up is how many underground civilizations beneath new york city are there in the in the marvel universe and are they just layered on top of each other like it's just different strata oh i went too deep i'm in the mole man's lair i wanted to go one up above where the morlocks are i do worry about the structural integrity of manhattan given the like density of underground civilizations <laughs> there's just so many every time the heroes go underground they're gonna find a new thing mm-hmm. <laughs> that's like they don't need to go into uh the, the microverse or outer space they can just keep going down under new york city <laughs> see they can see what's there. as the silver surfer iconically says there are always worlds within worlds mm-hmm. um i like what you said that this this kind of gives you that feeling of kind of uh bouncing around the you know just just whatever genre like that first issue it's like all of a sudden there's a fairy <laughs> yeah, at the end of the first issue and it's like oh, okay there's a fairy here uh and, and we've had like the the horror of of the grim reaper and death uh is going on you've got classic superhero fights you've got cosmic beings uh you've got the um the, like the, these render a random underground city and then also like it's just like the the twist of a mystery like the, the whole time i think uh, at least i was feeling this like pressure of like what's really going on with bobby and amaryllis here like there's a it, it doesn't present it as like a a closed room mystery or a um you know discover who the culprit is kind of mystery but you have that kind of tension i think is present yeah i just on the nostalgia note too i think it feels like I don't know. It feels like the memories that you have of reading comics, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you know, where your memory is kind Mm -hmm. of all jumbled up with just iconic moments and you're missing some of the in-between scenes because there's Mm -hmm. very few like, although there are a lot of quiet moments in this comic, it is sort of pardon the fun thing after thing <laughs> and you know that's how we remember comics you know we remember something like the thing's iconic battle with the champion and that takes up a lot of space in our mind why did that battle happen what was the outcome what was the larger context it doesn't matter like what we remember is that that battle was huge and impressive and epic and that it took up a lot of space in our minds and therefore it takes up a lot of space in the comic I feel like the way this story is told sort of mimics comic book memory in a lot of ways uh, yeah i totally agree with that um 
and I've had the experience recently just for some research. I've been going back and reading uh, some stuff that I know I read probably 20, maybe 25 mm -hmm. years ago. And it's like, sometimes I'll get to a panel. It's like, oh, I remember that. And then mm -hmm. like, I remember nothing else. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just kind of gone. Uh, and that idea of um, trying to like capture the, the, the vague feelings of nostalgia without the, the like concreteness of going back and feeling those, the, you know, giving us specific moments, which a lot of creators will do. Uh, modern comic book creators will often go and like give us specific moments from the past and recontextualize them or make us re, you know, think about them differently where it's like, ah, you remember this issue from the Avengers that that's 20 years old. Well, let me, let me tell you who was really pulling the strings, uh, you know, that made the characters act this way in that issue of Avengers. And he doesn't do any of that. Uh, you know, the creators for this miniseries, they don't do any of that. They just want to give you kind of the feeling of reading those old yes. comics without having to worry about, uh, you know, the editor's box that's going to go say, you know, read Tales of Astonish number 397 to find out <laughs> what, what this character is from or anything like that. It feels so much like nostalgia for a feeling, but then also with sort of like a modern adult consciousness too, because I know you want to talk about some of the, some of the themes around like toxic masculinity and stuff that are in this text. And there's also some interesting stuff being done with race in this text, like both in mm -hmm. terms of the, the supporting characters that are added here and in terms of the thing's own, you know, perception of himself and the way that he's treated by say the cops and mm -hmm. like there's a there's an interesting panel in the in the first issue where the thing is describing himself and that he's asked about his race and he just says non-white. And that was a panel that I saw shared a lot on Twitter as like interesting um, for the thing in general. I mean, as mm -hmm. you said, at the top of the at the top of the pod, the thing was sort of representationally Jewish and sort of recognized as Jewish by a lot of fans for for a long time, but wasn't canonically Jewish until much later. And then Mosley, his identity is that he identifies as black and Jewish and is bringing that context to bear on this character as well. And I think some notable ways. So yeah, just a lot of themes mm -hmm. that we can talk about here. Yeah. And I think one of my favorite thing about comic books is where you can get that blend of just out there ideas and strange cosmic um, absurdity. Uh, mixed with some of those like deeper emotional moments. Um, mm. And it's something that the best comic books do remarkably well where, okay. The, I mean, for example, the basis of this entire series is a man that's made of rocks, right? Okay. That's mm -hmm. our starting point. <laughs> and yet I feel so sad for him so frequently. And also like uh, that last exchange between him and Alicia where he says, maybe you need a better boyfriend. And she says, well, can that be you? Will you be better for me? And he says, yes. Like, I felt proud of him. I'm like, this is a fictional character. Mm -hmm. And like, I was emotionally moved uh, reading this orange rock superhero have this conversation with his girlfriend. Uh, and it's something about the the craft of this particular storytelling, but it's also, I think, just the magic of comic books and why uh, so many people uh, keep coming back to comic books is these, you know, little panel to panel moments where, like you said, that, that one panel of the thing saying non-white when he's being asked to fill out this information box on the dating service, um, you know, that panel gets captured and shared online. And it's uh, it, and it's meaningful and it's everything is there. It's not like you've got to watch a whole GIF or a, a 30 second YouTube video. It's like, what is in this one panel that's capturing a specific moment in time in this story. And when it's done well, it's doing things in the comic book form that cannot be done in the other medium. And we talked a little bit earlier about the thing being a particularly like comic booky character. 
and I, you know, as comic book people, we're all familiar with Scott McCloud's understanding comics, but I do think that the thing is a particularly useful example of McCloud's concept of amplification through simplification, which is basically this mm-hmm. idea that in comics, you simplify some details to amplify other details and the thing's entire design, you know, incorporates that combination of fantastical ludicrousness and like deeply grounded humanity and the ways that he is simplified allows us to identify with the character because he's an idea as much as a person right i mean he's universalized by his fantastical monstrousness right he could be any of us he could be any race to some extent any gender he's a very masculine character but at the same time there are elements of of sort of I don't want to say femininity to this character, but one of the things that is interesting to him is the way that he can resonate with certain physical deviances, I would say, that like can resonate with gender deviance. You know, like in the first issue of Fantastic Four, he's literally introduced like in a clothing store in which he can't find any clothes to fit his body and is like being body shamed. <laughs> so like, I mean, there are some interesting gender elements to this character that I've written about before, but anyway, I'm getting really off track. The thing that I wanted to focus on was just unpacking something that you said there that, you know, the groundedness of this character that can be achieved just by altering the shape of his brow, just by making one eye larger than the other, just by (laughs) putting him in a a certain posture of defeat, right? Mm -hmm. It's just such a great character for, again, capturing what comics can do so well, and perhaps especially superhero comics. Once again, that combination of the fantastical and the grounded and making us feel these really deep, grounded human emotions amid these outlandish settings, right? Just the thing does that so well. And this comic book about the thing does that so well. Yeah, I totally agree. I've had um, just uh, a few occasions where I'm, like, I, I'm interacting with a comic book artist and I'm able to get a sketch from them. And I've started, I've decided like, I should just always ask for the thing because they always get excited mm. <laughs> when when I yeah. ask them to draw uh, to draw the thing. Even if it's not the character they're most well known for, it's like, could you draw the thing? It's always like, yeah. <laughs> I, I think mm-hmm. there's something exciting uh, about it. Um, I have a, a Ryan Stegman sketch that he did of the thing. And he, oh. he, he just got, this was, it's got to be like 15 years ago because it was when I was in grad school. Brian Segman was uh, living around uh, East Lansing and Michigan State where I was doing grad school was hosting a comics forum and he came, uh, you know, as a professional comic book artist uh, and and he was doing sketches for anyone who asked and I asked for the thing and he just immediately lit up and he drew him with like, it's, it's, uh, pencil and and then light inking is what he did but the eyes like it just feels like the brightest blue eyes staring out of this black and white mm. sketch that he did uh which is just so perfect for for the thing um like so you said good. yeah at the, at the top the ever-loving blue-eyed thing and mm-hmm. i i think as we're like we've probably alluded to it enough that our listeners probably have a good idea of who the character is but i, I want us to kind of like nail down some descriptions of who benjamin j Grimm as the Absolutely. thing is um he is very much, um, I think, uh, an emotional character. <laughs> he is, he's not driven by logic or reason. It is by his feelings, which sometimes comes off as petulant and angry, like he will throw tantrums. But I think the reverse or, or like the positive side of that feeling is he is so deeply loyal. Uh, like, like the emotional bonds that he forms mean so much to him. Uh, but that also means that the feelings can be overwhelming to him many times. Yeah, I think one of my favorite just two panel sequences in this entire comic which again we already talked about Mosley 
just be doing comics so well. And this is a great illustration of that, that he's asked about what he likes best about himself and then what, you know, his greatest flaw is. And his answer to both questions is that I never give up. So he has the, has the panel where I never give up with the proud expression. And then, you know, what's your greatest flaw? I never give up with his head hanging. Mm-hmm. And that's such a perfect distillation of the thing. That is the good and bad of the thing. It speaks to that emotionality and deep loyalty that the character has. But his stubbornness can have negative effects, as we see when he's not able to sort of tolerate Alicia's independence at several moments in the series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, like I put it in the in the show notes, like this, I think this this uh, comic book with the uh, uh, the various men <laughs> that appear as both cosmic beings, a lot of this does seem to capture some some discussions about toxic masculinity, uh, and uh, so that last discussion with with Ben and Alicia when she asks him to be better for her, she also mentions going to like an anger management class or or, or uh, I can't remember if it's it's counseling or or something about anger management uh, comes up as part of how he's going to be better. And yeah. uh, there's uh, that sense of protectiveness uh, that the thing has uh, is, uh, you know, this charming heroic aspect of it. But the the guy at the very beginning who who is there for the first two issues, uh, he's, you know, a villain who hits a sense of possessiveness rather than protectiveness. Uh, that is what's going to lead him to being a, a supervillain rather than a superhero. Uh, and so uh, there's these uh i i think mosley does a good job of like presenting like you said with those panels like the the positive and the negative of you know i never give up i never give up that can be good and bad uh being protective of those you love can be great being possessive of some of another human being uh is is very problematic uh and and leads to one person being a supervillain instead of a superhero yeah, exactly. And I think that really comes across in the exchange that, you know, we end up seeing with Alicia and the new guy who <laughs> ends up being evil anyway. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, Ben and Alicia are having the argument and then he gets spritzed in the face with the with the mace or whatever. And then because Ben Grimm is the thing, he can't control himself because he's... <laughs> Like a guy that's capable of like chucking literal tons of weight of things and what everything, you know, super powered, Mm -hmm. super dangerous being in a lot of ways. He chucks a car, right? And then you see the cops close in on him. And in most senses, this is like an unfair, unlawful kind of arrest. You know, the thing was provoked into doing this. And yet there are consequences to the power that he holds. And he's not always responsible with his own power. So it's again a good representation of that good and bad of this character on the one hand we sympathize with him because he is being mistreated on the other hand he partly got himself into that situation through his inability to control his anger and through his possessiveness right so again it's such a simple scene but it illustrates the complexity of this character and his world so well and I do want to shout out the art in that sequence. Uh, they do um, you know the onomatopoeia the the, the, mm-hmm. the big word. Uh, images but it's clearly like part of the penciled art um where sometimes i think some of those boom sound effects feel like they're they're photoshopped in later (laughs) uh, by this but like there's uh, i can't remember what word it is uh but whether it's bam or something like that but it's in the shape of the car as the car is yes (laughs) i was just uh, looking at it it's like wham under the car as it's flying through the air (laughs) 
and, and it's like embedded into the car the, this so wham uh, visual sound effect you know uh, in text <laughs> on a page with no sound uh, it's one of my favorite conventions of, of comic art when it's done well when it's done cheesily it becomes the the you know the, the 1960s Batman Biff Bam that is so irksome to comic book fans because they feel like comic books are only being released or, or reduced down to Biff Bam Pow uh, but it's, when it's done well like oh that is just good art that's uh, happening here it reminded me of kind of the way Mike Mignola does it in Hellboy, where it's like mm-hmm. really embracing the ridiculousness of it. Because, you know, you'll have Hellboy just saying boom in an onomatopoeia font as he's punching a werewolf or something. <laughs> and I mean, Hellboy like is very much a character that is indebted to the thing in a lot of ways. And I think mm-hmm. embracing that ridiculousness is part of the charm of both of those characters. Yeah. All right, so we were saying about the thing. We were trying to break down who this character is. He's he's got that dichotomy of like the brute strength, but also like that soft emotional core uh, that is part of him. Like he is he is uh, just such an emotional character that is going to drive so much of his own actions, but also ends up driving a lot of the plots uh, within Fantastic Four comics and within the the stories where he appears. Um, what else would you say kind of defines who Benjamin J. Grimm is? Ah. Uh... I mean, he's often described as the heart of the Fantastic Four, which, you know, extends from a lot of the things that that you were saying. I mean, he's a character that's on the periphery of the family unit in some ways. I mean, Sue and Johnny are literal family and Sue marries uh... Reed. Yeah, <laughs> Reed. It's like, how could I not think of Reed's name? <laughs> but um, but then Ben is sort of on the periphery and yet despite being on the periphery, he's also the heart of the team. And that often comes across in things like, you know, the iconic Fantastic Four issue. Oh, I should be able to get the number right because I've taught it before. Is it Fantastic Four 51, the This Man, This Monster issue? Uh, yeah, because it's the Galactus trilogy right before that ends in number 50, I think. Right. And then it goes so, straight into um, This Man, This Monster. What a run by Jack Kirby oh, Stanley. <laughs> I know, just unbelievable. But, you know, that issue, what brings, the, you know, the family back together, because you see, like, Reed and Sue fighting and stuff, what brings them back together is almost losing Ben. And, you know, the comic ends with everybody hugging Ben. <laughs> and, like, that's mm-hmm. so, like, representative of classic Fantastic Four to me. And that is another issue that, because um, I've, I've read it several times, and I actually read it recently. When you try and describe what happens in it, it doesn't make a whole ton of sense, <laughs> like plot-wise, <laughs> but it just feels right as you're in the story. Uh, and sometimes that, I think, can be more important than is this like the most tightly plotted, like intricate, you know, this panel on page three leads to uh, this reveal on page 17, you know, or anything like that, which uh, that can all be done well also. But sometimes it's like, did I just feel like I was in a good old superhero story as I read this? That can be exactly what I'm looking for in a lot of instances. Um, You said he's often called the heart of the Fantastic Four. I always enjoy the analogy of the Fantastic Four as a family where he becomes the infant (laughs) as well. There's that too. (laughs) (laughs) Because he is so volatile. Um, And uh, that brute strength that he has, this is something that we see in the early Jack Kirby creations for Marvel, you get both the thing and the Hulk are here very early on uh, as characters that are just driven by uh, strength. Seems to be a lot of what their superpower is just, we can get beat up and we can beat anything up. Um, and they, but they're very different characters in terms of the themes that they're able to explore and the dichotomies that are, but I've always thought it was interesting that uh, these hulking strong characters 
are so visually distinct, but also the character that they're given by Jack Kirby and Stanley are so distinct between uh, uh, Bruce Banner and Benjamin J. Grimm. Now, both characters are going to be filled with a lot of ennui and angst. <laughs> I'm not trying to say they're, yes. they're different that way, but the way it presents, it, it feels very different as you're reading their adventures. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the way I would describe it is, you know, the Bruce Banner Hulk relationship is, I mean, there's some sense in later comics that the Hulk is like an extension of, you know, his complicated feelings and there's like an abuse narrative and blah, 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 blah. But sort of originally, it was very much a Jekyll and Hyde thing where it's like Mm -hmm. everything that Bruce Banner isn't, the Hulk is, right? And he has to reckon with that, you know, he doesn't want to be this brute. He is this like (laughs) nerdy scientist, right? Whereas I think there's a way of reading the thing where sort of the form of the thing, this rocky orange (laughs) monster sort of represents an extension of Ben Grimm's self. You know, it represents the things that are good and bad about him, much as the Mm -hmm. ways that the powers manifest for the other members of the team can represent both their fears for themselves and what's good about them. You know, Mr. Fantastic's, flexibility is like both a physical trait and a psychological trait. I mean, that's like the nature of him as a scientist, right? You know, Sue turning invisible is both a power fantasy and reflects her fears about himself. You know, Johnny (laughs) becoming the human torch is kind of similar, right? It reflects his personality and extends his personality in a lot of ways. And I think there's a sense in which Ben Grimm already was this sort of highly emotional flawed person and i mean we only get a glimpse of that in the earliest fantastic four comics but it's further explored in other comics you know who was ben before he became the thing and i think reading the thing as an extension of himself that makes him have to reckon with those flaws that he already Mm -hmm. had before becoming the thing is a really powerful way of reading the character and the thing's relationship with alicia is part of that right like it's a very like ableist trope thing. So I don't want to give it too much credit, but the trope of Alicia and the thing is that his blind girlfriend can see his best self, but she knows his best self is actually the thing. And she's not in love with Ben Grimm, his human aspect. She is explicitly in love with the thing. Like even in those early comics, when he transforms back into Ben Grimm, she's visibly disappointed, which is a fascinating (laughs) aspect of those early comics. Like she wants to be with the thing. She perceives in a way that Ben does not, that the thing represents his best self. And to me, I mean, my kind of, you know, headcanon, whatever interpretation of the thing is that it's the best version of himself once again, because it makes him have to reckon with power and responsibility. It makes him have to reckon with the flaws within himself and turn those flaws into strengths He can't just sort of get away with being angry and irresponsible and possessive when he's the thing, because there are consequences to that, right? If he's angry and possessive, he throws cars and goes to jail. Those things wouldn't Mm -hmm. happen to Ben Grimm, human man, but they do happen to the thing. And that makes him have to change. It makes him have to be better on behalf of himself and behalf of others, because he takes on this obligation of being a superhero because of his transformation. And yeah, there's just so much that's that's fascinating about, you know, what this monstrous identity represents to this man who doesn't want it. And yet having to reckon with this, what does it mean to be a monster? Was I always a monster or is my monstrous self actually my most human self? Just like, oh, such a good character, such a great character. Just so many things that you can do with with, with that allegory, with that metaphor. 
And I think it's really interesting, besides just that allegory and metaphor, the way that the thing ends up playing off of the other Marvel superheroes. Like you said, his longest running mm-hmm. story is about his interactions with other superheroes. Um, we had you on to talk about Nightcrawler. Um, and I, I said at the time that uh, to me, one aspect of Nightcrawler within the X-Men is it feels like a lot of characters think Nightcrawler is uh, he's their best friend, but Nightcrawler doesn't know who his best friend is. <laughs> like for a lot of the characters, Nightcrawler's like, oh, that's my best bud. And Nightcrawler's like, I like you all. <laughs> but he doesn't like have that core. I think the thing is kind of like that for the whole Marvel universe. Uh, mm-hmm. That like you, there's so many team ups that you can think of with, with the thing. And it's such a fun character interaction uh, to see him with Spider-Man. Cause they're both, they both are going to use jokes to kind of efface their real feelings, but they're doing it in very different ways. Um, or the thing with, you know, with Wolverine, uh, like these are both characters that are kind of n- driven by violence. Like, 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 like so much of their power set is just about violence uh, that, that it is. But the way that that gets presented is so distinct for, you know, with the, the brawling nature of, of uh, the thing versus like the, the, the cutting violence, uh, you know, of Wolverine. And it allows for creators, I think, to really be able to give us some revelations about uh, characters, about motivations, just by putting them in the room, (laughs) in the room together. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the, I feel like everything becomes a thing pun when you're talking about the thing, one of the things Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) that I think is most productive about this character is that, you know, and this is something I know we talked about with Nightcrawler as well, you know, he's a superhero who can't pass as human. You know, he looks monstrous all the time. He can't disguise his powers the way the other the other members of his team can, the way most other superheroes can. I mean, the Hulk is sort of an exception, but he's not the Hulk all the time, right? Whereas right. Ben has never been able to control his transformations back into Ben. It's always been unpredictable and rare. And he's, for the most part, stuck being the thing. And again, that makes him have to reckon with what superheroic difference means because so often superheroes get to have their cake and eat it too they get to be special and then they get to hide again but the thing never gets to hide he's visibly different Mm -hmm. all of the time and again that makes him a particularly useful character for exploring sort of the allegories and metaphors of difference that the superhero genre inherently deals with i mean superman can be read you know as a jewish myth in so many ways and obviously created by Mm -hmm. two Jewish men, you know, just as World War II was getting started, right? So, I mean, that's a powerful, powerful interpretation of the character. But at the same time, like, the thing is the character who can't put on the suit coat and pass for human. He can't go back to his regular job. He is the thing all of the time. And he can be read as sort of a a metaphor for disability in that sense, right? You know, what does this new state of his body mean about his identity mean about his perception of himself how is he going to you know handle that change is he going to adapt to the world around him or should the world adapt to him and i mean i already brought up some of the gender stuff too there's a sense in which he can be read as feminized by the lack of control he has over his body by the way people try to police his body by the way people observe and stare at his body right There's just so many interesting things that you can do with, again, this superhero who doesn't get to choose his own bodily contours. He doesn't have the ideal masculine, you know, cover model body that superheroes had had up to that point. 
Yeah, I, I think you're definitely um, on just one reason why he is so fascinating, not just for fans, but also for scholars. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, if, if you hear an essays about the Fantastic Four, uh, it's probably, at least my feeling is it's probably gonna be about either Invisible Woman or The Thing, right? It's mm-hmm. less likely to be about Mr. Fantastic or The Human Torch. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting aspects of both of those characters that, uh uh, intentionally and unintentionally, uh, you know, have been present in the stories that, that feature the thing and, and invisible one. Uh, all right, Anna, thank you for this discussion. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? You kind of just gave a summation. So if you're good, that's fine too. <laughs> oh my goodness. There's so many oh, wait, things from this. There's one thing yeah. I wanted to come back to early on. You said you had some thoughts about Jordi Belair's art or, or coloring, uh, of, of, uh, um, oh, what is his name? Uh, Riley's art. Uh, Tom Riley yes. is, the, is the artist. Jordi Belair colored. I wanted to make sure we circled back to that before we fully wrapped up. Yeah, I just I've been thinking a lot since I first read this series about those action scenes that are the orange on orange, so the lighter orange background with the orange line work, and how striking those are, and sort of the different things that those evoke. They're not always, but there are a number of occasions throughout the comic where they're done borderless as well. Like that's sort of the background to smaller inset panels. And I was thinking about the way that that conveys timelessness. I did a thread for um, Sequential Scholars, which is my public scholarship uh, Twitter essay project that I do with Andrew DeMann. You know, I'm still calling it Twitter, whatever, X, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> we're still there. Um, <laughs> talking about sort of the uh, the iconic nature of violence in Hellboy. And I mean, I brought up Hellboy already, but um but yeah, it's this sense of like movement and stillness that makes these fight scenes very iconic. And what it kind of reminded me of was some of the things that we were talking about having to do with memory and nostalgia at the start of this podcast, right? It's almost like a faded moment that in its fadedness becomes timeless. And that, mm-hmm. again, it has to do with the layout as well, because it's borderless with the smaller inset panels. So it is sort of like the scene that stretches on into eternity and yet is cloudy as well. Like it's both distinct and cloudy, much the way our memories of iconic comic book scenes are both distinct and cloudy. And I thought that that was such a wonderful, I mean, that's just one interpretation of that technique. I think there's a million other ways that you could read it. It's a very evocative technique, which is what I think is so interesting and effective about it. But that was sort of what it conjured to me. I really, I really loved that technique a lot. And I loved when the, within doing that monochromatic where even like the lines weren't black, right. Where it's like orange, mm-hmm. uh, orange lines within the orange background, within some of the slight variations of orange. Uh, it just was so like arresting as you turn the page, You're like, Oh, <laughs> what is this? And I think that's another strength of the comic book medium is it, it doesn't feel like you're disrupting the story when you stop and just take in that panel of, uh, Riley's art with Bel Air's coloring. Um, you know, that that's something that this medium invites. Whereas like, if you pause a film on a really cinematic shot, it's like, well, I'm, I'm kind of breaking the narrative, but yeah. <laughs> I really want to look at this, this, uh, the way that the cinematographer set up this, this particular shot uh, with comic books, you turn the page and you can just look at it as long as you want. And that's part of the contract between creator and, and uh, audience. Um, Absolutely. That, Absolutely. That is a strength there. Um, yeah. And uh, this, I, I want to also, I'm pretty sure it's Riley did the covers. I really love the covers uh, for the series. Great. Um, and there's one cover that is an homage to a Jack Kirby collage sequence, which is, I think it's from the Galactus trilogy, the collage sequence, I think uh, that he's doing an homage to. Uh, and it was 
there were times where Jack Kirby just got experimental with his art <laughs> and uh, it, it would always be surprising when you came across it. And the collage that he does in the fantastic four is one of the famous examples of this. And one of the covers does an homage to it that I really, really liked. Uh, any other final thoughts? Um, I feel that listeners who know me from my book, super sex, sexuality, fantasy, and the superhero will expect me to just mention that the thing does have sex as the thing in this series, which was actually a big deal when it happened uh, because questions about the nature of this character's sexuality and whether he has a sexuality have been, let's say, a topic within fan discourses, both in, you know, very juvenile ways with something like Jay and Silent Bob having a conversation about it. But um, uh, something that interests me as a scholar, which I've... Uh, I did a conference paper about that one time, sort of the presence and absence of, of uh, superhero sexuality with specific reference to the thing. So um, <laughs> when this happened, I believe uh, I believe one of my tweets on the subject got added to one of those screen rant write-ups and I was credited as an expert in superhero sexuality who felt that this was a very important moment in the history of the character. So I just, I just, I had to signpost that uh, people would be disappointed if I didn't. Uh, it's always interesting. What uh, aspect of your scholarship is going to end up getting used to any ma mainstream coverage, <laughs> right? <laughs> I own it. I'm proud of it. <laughs> All right. Well, that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us, listeners. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. And we would like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Anna, uh, you've mentioned uh, your some, some of your public scholarship, but where could listeners go to find more of your work? Um, for open access stuff, you can find me over at ComicsXF doing the occasional comic book review. You can find me on Twitter, X or whatever we're calling it, just under my name, Papard underscore Anna. You can also find me at the Twitter account Sequential Scholars. Might be moving that over to threads at some point. But if you enjoy Twitter essays about comics, you will love that account wherever it ends up. You can also find me at the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, which is an issue by issue read through of the classic Marvel comic series Excalibur, co-starring a ton of really smart comic scholars, um, along with my regular co-hosts, Christopher Maverick and Andrew DeMann. Joe has been on the podcast. We had a lot of fun and lots of other people who have been on this podcast as well. So if you have an interest in the X-Men comics of the 80s and 90s, come check us out over there. Um, and, and I do recommend all that. I wonder if Elon Musk realized what his ego trip was going to do to your public scholarship, Anna. Ah, yes, it, it has been very bad for me personally, a person who is still working on a large grant application uh, of which Twitter was a central component. So it's, it's been great for me personally. All right. Well, thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. Sorry, Andrew, you're going to have to edit that.